you already know what I want to start with with our intro. Yes, me am so. I just had like the best day the other day because <laughs> I was I wanted to see the Marcel the Shell movie. Yeah, and I know you don't really you haven't seen it. Yeah, no. I when you said it, I was like, that sounds interesting but I've yeah. never okay. heard of it before <laughs> well it's a really famous YouTube video from like 10 years ago or okay. more than that maybe anywho they made it into a movie <laughs> I would recommend it to literally everyone it is so good <laughs> it's about a literal shell okay that wears that, shoes I love that yeah and his um, name's Marcel that's so cute yeah anywho so I was like looking at what theaters offered it I'm in West LA, like Culver City area. And the only theater is in West Hollywood. Yeah. And I was like, I'm not driving to West Hollywood. Nope. No, sir. That's way too much gas. And so I was like looking at how to get there. And I had to take two different buses. And usually Oops. I'm like, what if I like just miss one and then I have to wait and then blah, 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 whatever. Yeah. I'm always like, I feel like it's just not going to work out. Right. And you know what? I know you just had a terrible experience on transit. So I'm going <laughs> to counter with my good one so that people are okay. reassured. Because okay, good. I got on, first of all, the app that I use, like the Move It app, was so yeah. accurate. Like I went out and the bus rolled right up. And then I got to, I had to get off at, in Westwood, like near UCLA. Okay. And the bus came right as I was getting off the other one. I was like, I feel like this is like a VIP service and I'm walking yeah, this up is one like bus on the, the next. Perfect, the most perfect transit experience. And it happened again on the way home. Got yeah. off the first one. It was like time, like divine timing. And then I got right onto the second one. I love that. And I, I have and never it, felt so happy on transit. I'm so happy. And this is the thing is like my story, my experience on transit was not meant to deter people from taking transit because there's a lot of obviously like great, um, just great options and alternative modes that can be taken. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) but I'm telling you, I'm pretty sure it's just me, like me taking transit. Yeah. (laughs) Because like, I was even telling Sam the other day that I got stuck in a two hour detour (laughs) just on the freeway, like trying to get home. Just you transportation wise, just any. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm telling you because I was talking to a friend of mine and he was just telling me like, oh, like things must not be going well for you. And I was like, no, they're not going well for me actually at all right now. And he goes, well, when it rains, it pours. And I was like, you know what? That is so true. And so I feel like it's not even transit. It's just me as Natalie, like my, I've got a lot of shit going on. (laughs) Well, did I ever tell you about my suspicion? No, what suspicion? So pretty much every day I eat eggs mm. for breakfast. Okay. And I like them when you flip them. They're like not sunny side, like fried egg, but like you flip yeah. them. And I used to, <laughs> if Sean knew I was telling this story, <laughs> I used to say every day, if I, if the egg yolk broke when I flipped it, bad transportation day. Like bus okay. was going to be late. Train was going to be late. Something was going to happen. And if I didn't, it was going to be a good day. And I, okay. <laughs> for like two weeks, I wrote down every day. If I did like go somewhere on a bus or in my car or on transit, I would write down if it was late, if it was on time, what happened? 
it turned out that it was not true. Like it was totally not related, but in my head, I was like, the yolk determines my day. Yeah. So the egg essentially is, is the tell all of life. Yep. Except that I, I proved, I proved that it, that was not true. But also what a big responsibility to put on an egg. No, you know, and like, (laughs) like, yeah. Cause I'm not like carefully flipping them. Like yeah, I just do my thing. (laughs) And if it broke, I was like, I can't leave the house. I'm, oh, I can't leave the house. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I have to say that no eggs were involved in yeah. my two <laughs> horrible transit experiences. Yeah, that's good. But I do remember specifically like the first encounter just being like harassed on the train platform. Yeah. I was like, you know what? This is such a common experience among people. You know, maybe, maybe this was just like, you know, it's just that experience that I have to go mm-hmm. through. But then it was like, even being in my car, I couldn't yeah. have like a, just a simple drive. I was, yeah. it literally took me like three hours to get home the other day. And yeah. I just remember I, <laughs> I got home, it was like 10 45 PM and I had been at work all day yeah. and it's 10 45. And I'm like, I just don't ever want to get back in my car. (laughs) I don't want to get on a train. I don't want to do anything. I just want to be nothing right now in this place, like in this moment. But you know, when it rains, it pours, I'm trying to take everything, like digging myself out of this hole. I've just been having like a tough month, but it's going to get better. I know it. I just, I have all the faith. Yeah. And this is the petition for Natalie to just move to LA. So she yeah. doesn't have to commute. So you know years. what's so funny? I actually genuinely considered it. I started looking up apartments on Zillow. I was and like, it's Let's expensive AF. Yeah. And all of it was like 3,500, four yep. grand. And, yeah. you know, I'm single with Milo. Like I can't even split rent with anyone. I would yeah. just have to pay that. And it's like, um, you know, the way my bank account is set up, that's just not a viable option for me. Yeah. Um, and I was telling my dad and he was like, you know, just try to see if you could tough it out for one more year. If push comes to shove, like, you know, you can find an option, like we can figure it out. And I was yeah. like, yeah. Um, but I'm telling you, I'm really excited for class tomorrow. Like I, I very much am. I'm looking forward to starting, but just the thought of getting back in my car. Like I just dropped my dad off at LAX. Just oh, the thought of getting back today. In yeah. I just you were right back. near me. Yeah. I just got back like an hour ago and I just wanted. LAX, well, LAX is the worst place on the planet earth. So yeah, it is. It is. And Quite I almost truly. got hit like 40 times. Uh-huh, <laughs> I was like, uh-huh. can you guys just get out of my way? Like <laughs> I'm not even doing anything. I'm staying in the same lane and it's like a bus, a police car almost hit me. I was like, you guys need to get it together. Also, Sam, I don't know if you see, there's a yeah. woman behind me. <laughs> I was just, I was just texting her. I was like, I'm recording, but then I got sidetracked. Anyways, it's just being at LAX was a nightmare. And then I was thinking, man, I have to get back in my car and do this all over again. Yeah. Why? Yeah. So, you know, it's okay. It's going to be okay. I'm going to get through it. You will. (laughs) One way or another. (laughs) Hey. Welcome to... Urban planning is not boring. I'm Sam. And I'm Nat. All right, let's jump into it. Yes, ma'am. 
So as you all know, hopefully we are going over the first four chapters of The Color of Law, A Forgotten History of How Our Government Segregated America by Richard Rothstein. The book. (laughs) (laughs) The book. The Um, book. So I think we're just gonna, we're gonna try and keep this episode short because really you should read the book. Like you really, if you, if you are listening to this and you haven't read it, I would highly recommend. It is absolutely so good. Um, the first chapter is called If San Francisco, Then Everywhere? Question <laughs> mark. Um, <laughs> why are you laughing? No, I just love like the the title, just everything about the book was, I just feel like really well thought out. And I just like, I don't know, he's, he makes such a, it's, I don't want to say it's mundane, but sometimes it can be, it can be a little dense. And I feel like he really brings it to life in a way that's like, you know, you, you really do become very interested in, in the topic and what is being discussed in the history. And, Mm -hmm. you know, even if you're not in urban planning and you want to read this book, like, I think you would, you would really enjoy it and you'd, you'd get a lot from this read. Yeah. I don't know if you'd necessarily enjoy it, but you would definitely learn a lot from it. It (laughs) It's definitely frustrating and like makes me really angry at times. Yeah. I have to like do deep breaths. Absolutely. I think I mean like enjoy reading it. Yeah. Like, yeah. Um, because not it's the not, content itself. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't read like a textbook. Like it definitely exactly. reads like narrative. Well, yeah, exactly. I think that's why I appreciate it so much. Yeah. So basically the whole point of this first chapter is like San Francisco, as a San Francisco Bay Area girl, um, it's definitely known as like a super liberal part of the state of California yeah. and the country at large. And So it's basically saying, like, if this was happening in the Bay Area in San Francisco, like, we know that it was most likely, and in this book, it was definitely happening everywhere. Yeah. Which is just sad. Yeah. Um, And this, I feel like this chapter kind of is just like an introduction. I do have a couple of things, like, highlighted that just stood out to me. And it's like, it talks about Richmond, which is an area in the East Bay. Yeah. And it talks about how like the city's police would stop African-American men on the street and arrest and jail them if they couldn't prove they were employed because they just didn't want people coming to Richmond unless they were like employed there and like essentially the war effort. Yep. And it's just like, I don't know. I feel like a lot of this episode is just going to be like us being like, yeah. How? Yeah. How is this a lot? Like, yeah. It was literally written into our government. I know. And I think this is the other thing where everybody is constantly thinking when we talk about like racism and planning that we mean like subtle backdoor conversations or like Mm -hmm. really, you know, just kind of like hidden in the hidden in the cracks, like a little sprinkle of racism here and there. But no, like this was explicit segregation and racism in such significant ways and so we're not saying it as like oh I mean that had to be racist no it was like this was the actual history of what was happening and it was not you know you can't take it any other way there's no way to spin the story like this was legitimately happening in communities and yeah it's just it's shocking and just really upsetting (laughs) yeah um one thing that I will say is this book definitely made me realize how 
little I remember from my U.S. history classes. Oh, absolutely. Like when they're talking about presidents, I'm like, who the heck? Yeah, I was telling like, Sam, I was like, how do you think I didn't realize I messed, I switched FDR and Eisenhower the other day? Like, <laughs> like, do I need to go back to high school history and just like take it over again? See if I could sit in in the class or something? Cause no, but high school history, oof, it do be biased. That's true, girl. You don't That's learn true. about a lot of the important things. We've talked about that. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but okay. Something else that is in this chapter that I kind of never thought about is that, so obviously there was a lot of like measures in place so that a black family or a black person couldn't buy a house in an area that was like white dominated or like deemed like a white suburb or whatever. But I also didn't realize that. So it says here that they would not insure mortgages for white people in a neighborhood where African-Americans were present. So in this case of East Palo Alto, which in the Bay Area, Palo Alto, like East Palo Alto nowadays is definitely like known for being, I guess for lack of a better term, like the wrong side of the tracks of Palo Alto. Like it's a very high percentage of people of color. It's more low income. Mm -hmm. And Palo Alto the other side, I guess, was where like Stanford University is. Like it's a really yeah. high, high income place. But it says once East Palo Alto was integrated, whites wanting to move into the area could no longer obtain their government insured mortgages. Mm. So it's like it wasn't just we're keeping like black people out. It was like yeah. we're not letting you integrate, even if you are as a white family want to. Yeah, willing and able. And or I didn't really to do that. I didn't realize that before reading yeah. this. Yeah, that was also something that I was not really aware of, but I definitely can see that because at the same time, you would wonder, like, I'm sure from their thought process, it's a liability. Yeah. And so, you know, and so that's how they're going to, you know, basically justify the reason why they're not going to insure that mortgage. And so it really does just go to show that there wasn't even a desire to integrate or mix communities, whether it was typology, race, income, anything like that. And Mm -hmm. that's just, yeah. Yeah. And then it says, like, as a result of this, within six years, the population of East Palo Alto was 82% Black. Mm -hmm. Yes. So obviously, like, that is, like, pretty startling. Yeah. Like, a big majority. Right. And the book did mention that at the same time, that influx of Black families into East Palo Alto, also that like home values started dropping significantly with the introduction of people of color into that area. And so it really does go to show just how, how, how significantly explicit. Yeah these actions were when it came to housing for people of color yeah I do wish that like this was required reading for everyone in the world absolutely every single person absolutely at least every single white person (laughs) but like the fact is that we have these you know implicit biases about slums or ghettos right these places but it's like the government literally created them. 
Like they yeah. are, they were made by the government. The government was yes. like, okay, so we're not going to let like people we deem as like reliable and desirable move in. And we're also right. not going to help you like with any sort of like investment into your community. Yeah. You have to like figure it out if there's more people just bunk up together. And then yeah. like, obviously without that support and without that like level of investment, the, de- the like conditions are going to deteriorate. Of course. Not only that, they were already on in the first place yeah. where they were putting housing and public housing for people of color was mm-hmm. already not in a good area. And yeah. this is where we start talking about like, oh, like zoning is so that we don't put a single family house right next to a waste plant yeah. because the emissions could significantly impact families. Well, they were doing that. And they were doing that in areas where there were a predominant, um, there was a significant amount of people of color. And they were doing that because they had a disregard for the safety and well-being of those folks because they were trying to cater to white working class families. And they were trying to cater to that group more so than any other group. And that's the group that got the most consideration, the most investment that, and this is also based on just the hierarchies that have been in place in the United States since its creation. Yeah. Uh, it's And that's undeniable. That's just an undeniable fact. Yeah. And they do talk about that. I think it's chapter three. Yes. Um, but moving on to chapter two, it's called Public Housing, Black Ghettos. Mm-hmm. And this chapter really touches on this like transformation of public housing from um, how it describes it at the beginning of the chapter as the original purpose was to give shelter not to those too poor to afford it, but to those who could afford decent housing, but couldn't find it because none was available. Yeah. And so this like kind of, I think, perception that people have nowadays about public housing was not the case and not the original intention, according to this, of what public housing was meant to be. Yeah. It was supposed to subsidize how, like give, like allow for people to have housing where there wasn't any that they could like purchase. Yes. (sighs) Now, that's another interesting point, too, because I'm and I told Sam about this already, but I'm going to tell people who are listening. If you have never watched the Pruitt-Igoe documentary, it's known as I believe it's called the Pruitt-Igoe myth, and you can find it on Amazon video, um, possibly YouTube. I'm not 100 percent sure, but that really does give a an extremely good breakdown of how public housing started and what ended up happening to it because of government intervention in the worst way possible. And the fact that as soon as suburbs and this push for suburbs started for white working class families, public housing turned into slums. And then you saw these slums have significant social impacts and significant economic impacts on people of color and communities of color. And so I think that progression is really just so important to understand. And as Sam said, I think we have a view of the way we, we deem housing in the downtown area, housing, you know, throughout history when it was public housing or multifamily housing, it is really, there's a a very nuanced history that I think is important to, to really understand. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. And it's funny because right after you told me about that, I got to the part of the book where they they briefly mentioned Pruitt yeah. Igo. Yes. And I was like, ooh. Yeah. There they are. Yep. I just learned it's, who these what this yeah. is. 
Yeah. One of the most, really the most, I guess it was just, I mean, the most, the, the way I could describe it is just like the most perfect case study of Mm -hmm. the failure of government to provide housing for, for folks during that time. And just kind of the transition from what public housing started off as to where it ended and, you know, planning, planning practices like that. So really, really important. Yeah. I'm like, I don't want to bring up everything that I've highlighted and like notes about, but I think like, obviously a big part of this is like public housing, um, was segregated. There was white only projects and then black only projects, Mm -hmm. um, in different neighborhoods. And there was this interesting thing called the neighborhood composition rule where federal housing projects should reflect the previous racial composition of their neighborhoods. Okay. Which basically the way I interpret it, like perpetuates the, the segregation that's already present. Correct. So that's something that I didn't know about. <laughs> like, I'm just like, I learned a lot and I'm going to tell you I what mean, I learned. <laughs> well, that's good because that's what the whole book is about. And I'm sure people yeah. who are listening are like, oh, that's something I didn't know either. That's something like I was really interested in reading. So I think that's, that's good to bring up. And I do remember there was also, um, I know that in some public housing complexes where it was for black families or families of color, um, I believe it was either in order to keep your property subsidized or to keep receiving money, men were not allowed in the home. And so some of these public uh, housing projects had only women and children. And if they were married, it didn't matter. The man could not live in the home. And I believe also the Prudigo myth uh, goes over this. Mm-hmm. But um, this is where a lot of people do begin to discuss um, how government was even intervening in black families and the way that black families were, were made up. And, um, so I just think that's also something that I was thinking a lot about while reading this book and how it discussed Mm -hmm. the projects and how it discussed these, these public housing buildings and the fact that they were segregated. But I also do recall, um, that they, they were also at times for women and children only, even if the woman was married. That is really interesting. And I yeah. did not know that. Yeah. Um, this this chapter also starts to allude to this like environmental injustice that we see with um like how zoning is the purpose is to like separate incompatible uses, but here um the Federal Works Agency proposed a project for African Americans on a plot um in an industrial area deemed unsuitable for white people so it's basically Mm -hmm. oh well we can't put the white people here so we're just gonna like let you figure it out and like you can deal with it and like right just I don't yeah like that like the they just like strip people of their literal humanity and they say yep sorry we can kind of dictate your whole life so you can go live over there yeah just horrific 
It is really. And um, just really quickly, I, because I just wanted to make sure that I was saying it correctly, but yes. Yeah. So in the Pruitt-Igo project, residents were not allowed to have able-bodied men in their house if a woman was, was receiving help for her dependent children. And so this was leaving many women and children without a man in the home or a father. And uh, this is actually something that gets discussed often for, um, you know, constantly people are bringing up like, why are black fathers absent in the household? And many people do point back to this history of the way that often government was intervening in the makeup of black households or in the yeah. makeup of households of color. And um, so I just wanted to point that out because it is a really significant thing to address when discussing public housing, because mm -hmm. it wasn't just, oh, we're going to subsidize your housing. We're going to offer you housing. It's we're going to offer you housing. But if you are of a certain race or ethnicity, you're going to abide by a specific, like some very specific kinds of rules. And mm -hmm. if you don't abide by them, then you're not going to receive that help. And they were not held to the same standard as a white family. And so I yeah. think that's really important to like just address really fast, but we can go on and move to chapter three. Yeah, one other quick thing is like obvious this might be obvious, but like the amenities available in white only oh, yeah. mm -hmm. affordable or not affordable uh public housing schemes were yeah. like so beyond anything yes. that was available to, to yeah. black families. Absolutely. One last thing that just pissed me off to no end was when they um in 1954 the Supreme Court invalidated separate but equal public education and like Brown v. Board of Education. And then the general counsel of the Housing and Home Finance Agency stated that that does not apply to housing. <laughs> How, it's what? Like there's, it's like, oh, well they actually said education. So it doesn't apply to uh, us. Separate that's... but equal, not in education. Housing? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. We're separating you and it's gonna be quote equal yeah, absolutely. Except, no, not. it wasn't. Yeah, absolutely it was not. not. No, it was not. And guys, right now, if you could see Sam, she's furious, <laughs> like furious. I, I just, I, mean, I just like as someone who's like going into this like field and just, it just it makes me embarrassed. No, absolutely. It makes me embarrassed I mean, to be white. It makes me embarrassed to be like in this country and like to be in planning and to like read all this. And I'm like, yeah, I think though on the flip side, it's like, read it, be upset about it. Yeah. And then let's figure out how we're going to right those wrongs. Because yeah. I think that's the thing is get mad, be yeah. angry, but don't let it stop there. Now it becomes action oriented work to make sure that we don't ever let something like this happen again. And that we are literally on top of it when it comes to trying to find solutions to these problems, because yeah. there is no, you know, quick, just like, oh, now it's over. Like, yeah. bye, we're done. Like everything's yeah. fine now. Nope. We still have so much work to do in this space. And yeah. so I think the first part of it becomes educating ourselves on it and really getting familiar with what, what actually happened and mm -hmm. not just shoving it under the rug and saying, Oh, it's history. It's a part of history. It's yeah, it is of course. But now it's like, what are we going to do about it? Because it yeah. still impacts a lot of people today. Yeah. Yeah. So the third chapter is titled racial zoning, which is what we alluded to earlier. And basically yes. The main, you know, point of this chapter is just discussing how cities adopted zoning rules that 
basically mandated separate living areas for black and white families. Yeah. So they were Jim Crow laws, essentially. Yes. Yeah. Um, and the first to do that was at Baltimore in 1910, which mm-hmm. prohibited African-Americans from buying homes on blocks where whites were a majority and vice yes. versa. So again, yeah. the vice versa of if you're white and you, you know, want to move on to a certain block, but it's majority black people. Yeah. Can't do not it. Not allowed. Yeah. Um, a big thing that happened in this chapter that, um, pops up in the rest of at least what I've read so far is this court case Buchanan versus Warley, mm-hmm. um, which so the court ruled that racial zoning ordinances interfered with the right of a property owner to sell to whoever whomever he pleased. So basically, it's saying the freedom to sell your house should not be like, I guess, blocked because of racial zoning. And right. so, but then everyone and their mother tries to loophole around this. Mm-hmm. They're like, well, like, cause they, you know, obviously segregation must persist, whatever. Like, right. so a lot of people, either there was no enforcement yeah, or they were just like trying to do loopholes to get around this case. And right. Um, so for example, in Richmond, Virginia, they tried to go get around this by adopting a law banning interracial marriage. So the city mm-hmm. then prohibited anyone from residing on a street where they were ineligible to marry a majority of those already living there. Right. So if you're a white person and you're ineligible to marry a black person and the mm-hmm. street you want to live on is majority black, you can't live there. Mm-hmm. Yes. What the hell? What the yeah. hell is that? Yeah. How was this? How? You know, though, okay, so, and this was even, this was something that they brought up in the chapter as well, where you had even literally a senator who was the leader of a massacre. Yeah. Uh, I think a part of, I think it's called the Red Shirts. Yeah. So you have a a literal murderer (laughs) and he runs for Senate and won served for however many years Mm -hmm. and is never punished for this, never held accountable for this, and then goes forward to institute even more tactics to segregate uh, families, neighborhoods for, for years. And it's like, so just to be mindful of the fact that this was literally the reality of our country is that you could have someone who's knowingly a murderer and the leader of a, of a literal massacre, and he's still somehow able to win the Senate race and continue on for years to segregate communities is literally, I mean, when we say like, what the hell, how, how could this happen? It's like, you would think it was a fucking movie and instead it's just this was the reality of our state and our country and it's like it's unbelievable and yet still I keep reading things like this and I'm just like how how did anyone sit there and say that he has my vote like (laughs) I mean I think it the, the like racist like not mindset but like it was just ingrained in people. Yeah, it was. I mean, like, it was just a part truly, of life. Yeah. It was completely normalized. And they erected and a, a statue in his honor. Oh, I know. I know. I know. I know. Um, but yeah, so then the chapter goes on to talk about how 
Um, hold on, let me find where else. Oh yeah, they designated land for future industrial development if it was in or adjacent to neighborhoods with substantial African-American populations. Yes, yes, I do remember Insert that. environmental justice. Yeah. Absent. Absolutely. Yeah. No justice here. That is like just so blatantly like in inhumane. Yeah, absolutely. No, I mean, um, actually, so and let's also take it from this isn't just historical. So yeah, I is, when yeah. I was doing undergrad, I was doing undergrad in public policy and I attended a conference in which an environmental justice organization came and they wanted to um, share their story, their mission, what they're doing, uh, their private consultant. I believe they were a nonprofit, actually uh, not private. So a nonprofit consultant agency that is really geared towards um, uh I can, I'm sorry, environmental justice. And yeah. this man who is the CEO founder of the, of the org, and I'm going to, guys, this is one thing you'll learn about me. I'll never remember it on the spot, but I'll go back and I'll find it and we'll share, <laughs> we'll share who it is and who they were. But anyway, so this man, African-American man, and he was explaining how he was born and raised in Los Angeles and um, where he grew up, he grew up right next to an industrial plant. And I, I believe it was a chemical plant. Um, and so what ended up happening was this was a predominantly black neighborhood who it had been historically a black neighborhood. And it mm-hmm. till that day was predominantly a black neighborhood that consisted of black folks and other people of color, very little white folks. Mm-hmm. He stated that he remembers he was, I think he said 10 or 11. His neighbor got cancer and died. Mm-hmm. Then their other neighbor got cancer, survived, but had cancer. Then his other neighbor got cancer. Mm-hmm. And then he got cancer and he beat cancer. And obviously, this was not just like some coincidence of like yeah. somehow everybody on the block is just getting cancer for funsies. Yeah. It was the fact that they lived so close to a plant that was polluting. And they were inhaling those toxins Mm -hmm. and they were suffering from this through a range of different diseases. One of them most predominantly was giving the neighborhood cancer. I mean, literally killing people. And so for anybody to say that, oh, I mean, this is just, uh, this is the space they had available. Um, no, (laughs) that is absolutely not true. They were doing this intentionally Because they knew that there was a hierarchy of whose life was more valuable over others. And they were Mm -hmm. using that and where they were going to be putting people throughout the communities. And they knew that if you were a person of color, you were, your life was less valuable. And so they didn't really care if you were next to a power plant that polluted it, they just absolutely didn't care. And so it's really not just like, this isn't something that doesn't happen anymore, that those houses are still there. There are still low-income folks and other folks that are living there that, you know, yeah. are, are next to these plants. And so yeah. it's just like so infuriating. Mm-hmm. And I'll never forget hearing that story. I literally started crying. I was like, yeah. you can't be serious. Like this is, yeah. you know, it's just so upsetting. And, and just, yeah, this is why the fight for environmental justice is so important. And I just yeah. feel like it's often not talked about enough. So I'm glad the book touched upon it. Yeah, I think. Like, it's definitely something where, obviously for us, like, it's really, really hard to hear, but like, it is like the lived experience of so, so, 
so many absolutely. people absolutely like, in the United States. And I would love to have like folks on who work in the space and like mm-hmm. t- can talk about either their lived experience or like their experience working in communities that are like so impacted by these injustices. Um mm-hmm just want to acknowledge like it is a privilege that we can like learn and talk about these things and not have experienced them like it's absolutely like a privilege that we have not like had to experience that kind of absolutely uh, like health impacts from where we live um one more short thing that and then we'll move on to the last chapter of this episode but um So the National Association of Real Estate Boards in 1924 um, adopted a code of ethics. And I was like, oh, a code of ethics, like, Mm -hmm. sounds good. No, included, (laughs) quote, a realtor should never be instrumental in introducing into a neighborhood members of any race or nationality whose presence will be clearly be detrimental to property values in that neighborhood. Yeah. So ethical. Yeah. Are you kidding me? That's in yeah. the code of ethics. Yeah. So we we value property values over over human lives. life. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Makes sense. Absolutely, and mm. that makes us the most ethical of all. Yeah. It's just mm-hmm. really feels like it's just so backwards. It's insane. And then a lot of people are like, you know we just, uh, we, you know, there were, there were some bad people in the mix. Uh Uh-uh. No, 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 no. There weren't bad people in the mix. There were literally idiots who were, (laughs) who were absolutely, they knew full well what they were doing. Mm -hmm. They knew exactly what, what it was doing, who it was harming. And it was intentional. And it's just like for anybody to just be like, no, no, you know, that's, that's just, that's so insignificant. There weren't that many people that were doing that. It was our literal government. It was, it was our actual, it was systemic. It was, it was built into the infrastructure of this country. So don't even for a second say anything about it Mm -mm. being, oh, it was just, just a few bad seeds. Get out of here. It was literally the whole motherfucking tree. Also, sorry for cussing so much, but this really gets riled up. I'm like, I'm so mad. Trigger warning. Cuss words. I know. Sorry, guys. So sorry. Um, Okay. The the last chapter for now is called, quote, own your own home. And I actually learned a lot in this chapter. First of all, I know nothing of history. I said this before. Yeah. So (laughs) apparently terrified by the 1917 Russian revolution, government officials came to believe that communism could be defeated in the U.S. by getting as many white Americans as possible to become homeowners. The idea Mm -hmm. being that those who owned property would be invested in the capitalist system. So capitalism is literally the root of all of our problems. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, that's great. I did not know that the Russians had to do with this at all. Not one bit. I just think like it's so crazy how often it becomes the individual's responsibility to solve the problem through mm-hmm. means of purchasing something. Yeah. Like Sam and I have talked about this so much. It's like, oh my God, we're in an environmental c- crisis. So you need to buy 50 million LED mm-hmm. light bulbs because yeah. that's going to save the planet. What? 
Yeah. Oh, okay. So we're about to face the possibility of becoming a communist country. So now we're going to build homes and we're going to charge mm-hmm. everybody for them. Mm-hmm. And you as the individual in order to fight communism are going to come and yeah. buy this house and you yourself as the individual are going to solve this crisis. Yeah. We do it in every facet of our lives yeah. and it simply will always come down to capital. And I don't want to say, I mean, look, I'm not, (laughs) I'm not the savvy one that's going to be like, this is a type of government we need, or this is the type of society that we're going to become. I understand why we as a society need, we're capitalists and I get it. I understand to some degree that it's necessary, whatever. But what I really, really hate is when it somehow becomes the individual's responsibility and the only solution is to purchase something. Yep. Just, just buy something, Yeah. you know, buy the Tesla, buy the light bulbs, buy, you know, invest, I don't know, donate to our organization. No, we need to start really actually doing the serious work, which is holding the systems accountable who is causing the destruction of our society. It's just like, how, how simple, (laughs) how how simple is that? Um, no, but like, it is just, we need to start, stop doing this thing where we're holding everybody else responsible. It's not people of color's responsibility to dig themselves out of a hole Mm -hmm. that they didn't even dig in the first place. Yeah. They were shoved in there. Somebody else dug that. And then they buried them. Exactly. And buried them. And we're like, Oh, but you know what? Uh, You need to dig yourself out, but we're not even going to give you You need to work harder because you need to get yourself out of this problem. Literally. And then we put them in the problem. problem. Exactly. And so it's like, and for us to, to buy in any way, shape or form say that now it's your responsibility to do something about it and to fix it yourself. And the only way to do it is to purchase stuff and to Mm -hmm. be a part of society and and a part of the economy. Are you kidding me? Literally? Are you kidding me? We have so many, oh my God, so many companies in this this country in the world that pollute in such detrimental ways. And then somehow it becomes, but now you, the, the American, you, the individual, you have to buy a Tesla or you have to buy an electric vehicle, you, and that's how we're going to solve our environmental crisis. Are you kidding me? Okay. We can talk. I could talk for hours about this because (laughs) that's how I, that's how I came into environmentalism was like zero waste, like eating less meat, whatever. And I do think that there is a lot of value in that. And in like small mindset changes that can like lead to bigger changes. But like at the end of the day, at the end of the day, it's like a hundred corporations that are creating 70 of our, 70% of our emissions. So exactly. Exactly. Me as one person and like me trying to like, you know, spread this this ethos out into the world is it's good don't get me yeah. wrong yeah it's good to recycle it's good to do all these things but like there you can't stop there exactly and I think that applies here too it's like I don't know it's just <sighs> anyhow yeah no I mean it's I just I get so heated talking about this stuff because yeah. it's just so frustrating where it always has to fall not on the person that caused the problem. It's, it's never on the individual that's causing the problem ever. It's always someone else's problem to deal with. And that really bothers me. And what bothers me even more is when you have these systems that are literally in place Mm -hmm. that are causing such harm and nobody's paying attention to that. They're just saying, Oh, well, what can I do? 
Mm-hmm. Um, yes, of course. Like there are things that you can do that are going to make a significant difference. I, I, yes, of course. But that along with no accountability for how we even got here in the first place yeah. will solve absolutely nothing. Yeah. And this is where it just becomes that frustrating, like revolving door of, well, we're still in the same place that we were 50 years ago. We're yeah. still suffering. And if they're not the same problems, they're similar problems. Yeah. And it's like, it's just, it feels like, you know, it's never ending, but yeah, I never want to feel like too defeated. I just no. have to air out my frustration yeah, yeah, yeah. club because I'm so mad. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, okay. So, so getting back into owning your own home. Yes. So basically this is where the homeowners loan corporation. What is it? Mm-hmm. Homeowners, yeah, HLC. Yeah, it's the homeowners loan corporation. Yeah, and yeah, the, the whole Yeah, the federal, federal housing, housing admin baby. Yes. Um. So both of these kind of sprang up in the 1930s under FDR. Yes. And they were. They, this is where the origin of like redlining came in, where they're saying, okay, yes. we need to we need to establish where we feel comfortable you know, with a low risk of giving out loans. And of course, if you're in a black neighborhood, you're going to be high risk. No back exactly. into that. Exactly. Your credit yeah. might be phenomenal. Yeah. doesn't matter. Yeah. And that comes up a lot in this chapter. You yes. know, a, a black family or a black individuals trying to purchase a house, they have good economic standing, they have good credit. Loan application gets denied simply because they're a black person. Mm-hmm. Yes. And so- don't come at us and say, well, blah, blah, blah. Like they just probably couldn't afford it. No. Yeah. Actually, a lot of these people probably could. Yeah. They probably had good jobs. They probably had, you know, the there's credit. also absolutely. And not just that, these were also folks. Okay. So this is something that really blows my mind because you had white soldiers who came home after the war and were like, and the government was like, we've got you. We're going to mm-hmm. back you. We're going to get mm-hmm. you into a home. Mm-hmm. black soldiers who fought in that same mm-hmm. war mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. they were like oh a homeland no sorry can't yeah. are you <laughs> are you kidding me yeah so, you fought for this country yeah but we don't fight for you yeah no absolutely we leave you not. out yeah yeah bye and i we're think gonna- it's also crazy that in this example of um the the a New Jersey real estate agent wanted to sell 12 properties to middle-class African-Americans with good credit oh, yeah. ratings. Yes. Banks were willing to issue the mortgages. Banks were yes. willing to assume the risk. FHA yes. said no. So no, yes. no mortgage. Yep. yep. I, the bank yep. was willing to do it. All the FHA yeah. had to do was say yes. Yes. And they said no. Yeah. What the hell? Yeah. And that really just, I mean, how many more times, how, in how many more ways could we say yeah. it explicit, just yeah. absolutely explicit. Like there's no, you know, yeah. sugarcoating anything. This was yeah. explicit racism. Yeah. It just, yeah. It never had to do with the economic risk really. No, it didn't. Especially when you do have a bank that's saying, Hey, we're going to assume that risk. Yeah. We're going to take that risk as a private institution. We're going to yeah. do it. And yeah. then you have the literal federal government say, Nope, sorry. Not going to mm-hmm. happen. Yeah. Yeah. I think that was a good conversation, but I just got really frustrated. So absolutely. No, um, that's just ridiculous. One thing or, that, what? 
Sorry. I was even going to say just like, um, I think they talked about something where it was like a homeowner got blacklisted by the FHA because they rented to an African-American family. Basically they subleased to them. Yeah. Like basically that's what they were doing. Exactly. And it's like, this is, it's just like, are you kidding me? Yeah. Uh, Just folks trying to do what they can folks trying to help in some kind of way. And they sent the FBI to this person and said, were you, did you get this loan under malicious intent of not actually moving? He's like, no, I actually just subleasing it to a friend of mine, a coworker of mine. Yep. And they said, Oh, you can never, ever again get a government issued advertised loan. It's just like, I just like, I really can't believe yeah. that. I genuinely cannot believe that. Yeah. So I think to conclude, I wanted to just bring up this, where it talks about our literal constitution, the Bill of Rights, mm-hmm. and it mm-hmm. talks about the amendments that we have. The Fifth mm-hmm. Amendment prohibits the federal government from treating citizens unfairly. Yes. This breaks that law. Yeah, of The course. 13th Amendment prohibits sliver- <laughs> slivery. Great. I'm doing great. Prohibits slavery or in general treating African-Americans as second-class citizens. Mm -hmm. Okay. Again, all this is illegal. And the 14th amendment, which prohibits states or their local governments from treating people either unfairly or unequally. Yeah. Again, none of this is legal under our constitution. No. But no one seems to care about that. Absolutely. And this like... (laughs) Even, even the founding document, all yeah. men were created equal. Well, yeah. I mean, that's a whole other conversation. I know. I mean, it's just so like, it's so crazy that in the, the very first document it's ever yeah. written, all men, the first sentence, all men yeah. are created equal. It's like, it's like that tweet where that person was like, there's no pronouns in the constitution. And like yeah, the literal like, first word is we. Yeah. Oh my God. Yes. Or like how funny. Okay. So, um. There's that, oh my gosh, family guy where Peter's like, I don't know, something he's talking to Lois and he's like, this, this is America, Lois. Like everything is just so amazing here. And then he's like, but don't mention like racism or environmental, you know, that that TikTok sound. It was viral on TikTok. Yes. Yeah. So like that sound. America's the best country in the world. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Don't talk about all these Don't mention. Exactly. And so it just makes me laugh because when people are like, well, I mean, the country, like the way we were founded and the way we started, like it was just not on equal grounds. And it's like, babe, uh, read the constitution. It's in the first sentence. All men are created equal. Of course they didn't include women, but if we're talking about men and they didn't include black people because black people weren't considered people under our constitution. So literally all white men are created equal. Exactly. And isn't that shocking that they didn't write that in? You would think they would have. (laughs) I mean, they were pretty, they were pretty damn explicit. Like I'm, I'm really shocked, but anyways, I love I it here. Yeah. I love it here. <laughs> As I'm like crying my eyes out. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. Okay. Two more quick notes. One. Yes, ma'am. So a lot of people say that our segregation is quote de facto. Mm. I don't really know exactly what that means, but it's not in the United States. It is mm-hmm. de jure, which means mm-hmm. by law and public policy. And yeah. that is pretty much the point of this whole book is our segregation didn't just happen by chance. It was literally written into our law and public policy. Yeah. 
I think that's de facto is like, well, I think it's just the opposite. <laughs> it is not. So I guess um, I believe the way that it's like here, we can just, I'll, okay. So de facto means a state of affairs that is true in fact, but that is not officially sanctioned. Oh, so and it's not contrast, officially sanctioned. Okay. And in contrast, de jure means a state of affairs that is in accordance with law. So it's officially okay. sanctioned. Okay. So yes. So basically this whole book's arguing that our patterns of segregation mm-hmm. are officially sanctioned, which it goes on to yeah. then discuss. Yes. One last quick note. This book focuses on like the black experience. And mm-hmm. obviously I think like that is incredibly important. I just want to acknowledge that like this did happen to like pretty much every other like minority population yeah. in the United States as well. Like yeah. it was largely black populations, but it was also like Asian American, like yeah, foreign born folks, black. yes, other, like, other any like foreign born, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. But yeah. So now I'm just gonna go about the rest of my day like stomping around being mad. Yeah, I know. <laughs> like angrily cleaning my kitchen. Right. <sighs> but then tomorrow we're gonna wake up and we're going to go to class and I don't have get class this- tomorrow. Uh, fine, whatever. I'll go to class tomorrow. Yeah. I'll get I'll go push forward towards my degree. And yes. then when I get into my career, I'm gonna make sure that we just yeah, really miss housing and real estate development yes ma'am i'm ready and i think this book is just so important to read to really get you know deep with um and yeah take a few breaths because it's really not fun to read a lot of these things and uh, like and come to the realization that this was actually reality for people at, at this point in time you know in history and that not only that but it may not be as explicit or as you know severe as it as it once was but it still mm-hmm. does exist and you know these are people who are dealing with this stuff on a regular basis and I think I just sent Sam the the article another black family who had their house appraised Mm $300,000 under, and then had a white family sub in for them, changed all the photos in the house. And it went from a $475,000 appraisal to like a $750,000 appraisal. And it's just like, these are things that are constantly happening. And Mm -hmm. it's just not something that we can simply say like, Oh, it's in the past. Cause it's not, it's, you know, it's really not. And so I just, I'm upset and I'm sad and I'm really heartbroken for folks who are going through this stuff on a regular mm-hmm. basis. And mm-hmm. it just really pushes me to, to just continue this, you know, this path forward to make sure that I can try to do my best as an, as one individual person to right those wrongs as, 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 you know, best as I can to the best of my ability. Yeah. And on that note, we'll see you next week. Yes, we will, guys. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening. We really hope that you enjoyed this episode of Urban Planning is Not Boring. If you did, please remember to send us to your friends and follow us uh, wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, guys, urban planning is not boring. No, it is not.